Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Last week we started a series uh, for men, uh, and specifically for men. And the goal is to challenge, to um, push us outside of our comfort zone. I don't know if you know this or not, men. Uh, we do tend to, once we kind of find what we're good at and we get a little bit of a, a groove, we get lazy. I don't know, is that, is that true for you? Probably not. It's just true at my house. But just get lazy, get in the groove to where I don't want to really push myself any further. Um, and so this series is designed to push against some of those things in our life. Our culture is telling us all the time that, that men are weak. Uh, that men are confused most of the time. Uh, that that it's a um, it's a world where where men really don't ever ever know what's going on. They're just they're just kind of there. Um, they drive minivans full of kids to places they don't know and don't or understand, and they drop them off and they're just told when to go back and get them, and and that's it. Or or we're put into a factory and we're told to do a thing and pull this lever and make this part, and this is the culmination of who you are as a man and so you get done and so you just try to retreat as far away from that as you can but God's understanding God's idea when he designed men was not was not that it's not that our occupation would become our identity it's that we would have an identity and that we would have an occupation and that we would have friends and that we would have people who pushed us and challenged us and that was God's design last week we left off the story of David and Goliath. If you're not familiar with it, you can read it in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the story, and I would encourage you to read it because there's some really great stuff in there. Where we left off was the shepherd boy shows up because his brothers are in the army. And he hears a giant barking from the other side of the, of the enemy lines. And he looks around and he says, nobody's going to do anything about this. And they're like, shut up, you're, you're a kid, you don't know. You don't, this is grown-up stuff. And he's like, I'll show you grown-up stuff. Gets a fanny pack, gets his fanny pack out, pulls rocks out, puts it in a sling, marches out to the middle, wallops the giant, runs out there, cuts his head off. All the while, the king, Saul, is saying, whose son is that? Who? Which I have, I have multiple theories on why I think he asked that question. Part of it, I think, is He's asking him as David is going out to fight Goliath. And he's like, who are we sending the flowers to? I think that's part of it. Whose son is that? We're going to need to make arrangements. No. I think the other part is, does he have more sons like you? This father that made you. Are there more like you? Yes, there are. And unfortunately, they're already in your army. And they're really not doing much. I think that's part of it. But I think one of the, the, the main thrusts of it is this. The question is, whose son are you? Have you ever met somebody and you thought to yourself, like, where did you come from? Where have you been? Where, what have you gone through in life that has made you this person that you are? Because that's you are abnormal, just abnormal. Like, you've gone through something. And I mean in a good way. I don't mean, like, in a bad way. Like, that dude's weird. Like, what happened? I don't mean that. I mean... Like what in the world are the things that we go through in life that would cause somebody just to be like that? And I think that's where Saul is. I don't know what this is. Which, this brings us back to the very final point of our sermon today. 
So this is going to be our starting point, this moment right here. Let me read you the passage. This is what it says. David just killed Goliath. He's standing in front of Saul with the head of the giant. He's dripping blood, remember, down onto his sandaled feet. And Saul says, whose son are you? And he says, I'm the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem. 1 Samuel chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Who's Jonathan? You know? I mean, like, it just shows up. He just shows up. <clears throat> Kills a giant. His dad says, whose son are you? And then in comes this kid who says, I love you. Okay, I'm weirded out, I'll be honest. For just a, on just, for just a second, I'm, this is strange. What, what, what's with all the love? What's with all, what happened in the situation? Well, here's what we find out. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. Which makes this even a little more strange. Because if anybody is going to be heir to the throne, it's Jonathan. Yet, he is offering his love to David. Why? Well, have you ever seen, like, have you ever watched kids in a school or on a playground? Have you ever noticed, like, the first day of school, kids really don't know each other, but then, like, the second day of school, the third day of school, all of a sudden, all the delinquents have found each other? <laughs> Have you ever seen this? It happens here too. I know it happens here too. But all the delinquents just kind of find each other. Like look up like, he's got a big scar on his face. I bet he's fun, you know? Like that's, that, that's this thing. And this is the way it kind of works. Like all the good honor roll students kind of go this direction. And all the delinquents kind of go this direction. All the jocks kind of go this direction. The theater people uh, all go this direction. All the band people should go outside. And then, I'm just kidding, man, people, I'm just kidding. But they do, we congregate. And we see something in somebody and we go, huh. And something's happened. Why is Jonathan so attracted to who David is? Now, there are some scholars who look at this and they find a very homoerotic relationship between the two. Now, look, from on a surface level, you can look at this and you can go, okay. I mean... When's the last time any of you dudes called somebody on the phone and said, hey, brother, I just want to tell you, I love you. You know what? I just love you. I give you the shirt off my back, and I love you. It's rare. It's rare. That's really not how we operate. We like to make fun of each other. What's up, fat kid? You know? High fives. Nice haircut. Where'd you get it? You know? Like, this is the way we operate. Cool square-toed cowboy boots. That's new. You know? Like, this is how we think, right? This is how we think. Because we want to connect with somebody on that level. But if we step into each other's life, hey, you know what? I love you. Let's hug it out. Like it's, it's kind of different, you know? And then this shows up right here. But I assure you that's not the situation here. I assure you it's not. There's something much deeper going on. But to answer these questions on what's going on inside this relationship all of a sudden with Jonathan and David, we have to go back a few chapters before Goliath, before David, into the life of King Saul shortly after he becomes the king. Maybe a few years into his reign, he's got a son named Jonathan who is now a military soldier. 
He's now a soldier somewhere within this within Saul's uh, rank rank system, and he has a special set of skills. Jonathan does very special set of skills, um, like on a Liam Neeson level. You with me? Like that kind of skills, um, make you disappear kind of skills. In fact, two or three different times you'll find Jonathan. He's kind of the tip of the spear when it comes to the military. Jonathan's a no-nonsense guy. He's just ready to get to it, ready to get the job done. He knows his role. He knows what he is. He knows what he was made to do, and he just needs somebody to unchain him from the, uh, the, the fence so that he can just go run and chase who he needs to chase. This is who Jonathan is. Saul, his father, on the other hand, is kind of different. Saul is kind of like he's more interested in you knowing that he's the king than he is really interested in being the king. He's really more interested in the kudos and all of the awards and the applause and the accolades about being the king than he is really doing anything about being the king. We're going to take a couple of looks into Jonathan's life to help kind of pull some pieces out so that we can understand 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 through 4 just a little bit better. So we have to go back. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I want to begin right there. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash uh, in, and in the hill country of Bethel, and the 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So right out of the gates, here's what we see. Saul handpicked all of his men. I want you, 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 you look big. You'd be a good fighter. I like you. You look fast. I'll take you. You look like you could swing a sword pretty good. I'll take you and you and you. I want, I want 3,000 men. He picks his 3,000. Check this out. Then Saul takes 2,000. He gives Jonathan, his son, 1,000. And he takes the rest of them who are all lined up and sends them all home. <sighs> Very next line. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost in Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Time out. Where are the majority of the troops? They're with Saul. Yet Jonathan is the one attacking. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land, and he said, Let the Hebrews hear. Brace yourself. So all Israel heard the news. Saul attacked the Philistines. But come on, man. Saul didn't attack the Philistines. You just read it, right? Jonathan attacked the Philistines. But you know what? Jonathan doesn't care. It's not like a letter jacket, and he's trying to get all-conference Philistine killer sewn onto the back. He doesn't care about that. You know what he cares about? Like, I'm doing a job. This is what I do. This is the way I'm wired. This is the way I work. This is what I've got to do. But Saul, on the other hand, in all actuality, a few, a few miles away, from where the attack takes place. Broadcast, takes to the media. Don't worry, everyone, your king has handled the situation. Here's what's crazy. What is the Philistine outpost doing in the middle of Israel? That wouldn't work here. That wouldn't work. We're not talking like an embassy, okay? We're talking like this is a place where troops gather. Is that going to go down here? Uh, excuse us. Uh, we'd like to... Nebraska looks un, un, uninhabited. I mean, maybe we could move like some other foreign army in here and would that get, would not work. 
Why did this happen here? I'll tell you why. Because Saul, Saul doesn't like confrontation. And right out of the gates, you see Saul really kind of show his, show his just vibrancy and God's hand on his life when he just goes straight into it and he attacks right after becoming king. But then he just kind of sets back and something happens to him. He doesn't want to do it anymore. And now the Philistines have moved from off the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea all the way across. Now they're right smack dab in the middle of Israel building a Philistine, I mean, a military outpost. And they've done nothing. Jonathan is sitting there. Can you see him? Hey, seriously, Dad, are you you're going to let him build this right here? Listen, you don't, you don't understand. You don't understand. I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the king. This guy. This guy. Finally, Jonathan grows weary of it, and he attacks. Listen to what happens. He says, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. That'll teach them. Okay. And the people were all summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines then assembled to fight with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they went up and camped at Michmash. Do you remember where, do you remember where Saul was when all this took place? Michmash. So they just marched to Michmash. And Saul's like, I think I'll probably go to Gilgal. So Saul leaves. He's gone. Um, so it goes on and it says, uh, they went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks, in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. You know what that is? That's Philistine country. They traded sides under the leadership of King Saul. You know what? I would rather surrender than work for this giant idiot. I'm going over here. This guy's going to get me killed. He just, this, I don't understand. There's a thing that happens. There's a thing that happens with men. And you see it in leaders all the time. You'll see a, you'll see a, a great leader step forward and then people will just back him. And then as soon as he does something just kind of maniacal or twisted or cowardly, people will abandon him. And they'll leave him. They back completely out. I don't want to have anything to do with what's going on with this guy. No, he's a coward. You know what's interesting is you never hear one word about Jonathan's troops leaving him. Only Saul's. In verse 7, Saul remained to Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. You go down to verse 15 and it, saw, and it says... Saul counted the men who were with him, and they numbered about 600. Saul has not even had a battle yet. And he just, his military just went from 2,000 to 600, and they haven't even fought yet because they're scared. Where Jonathan, on the other hand, marches straight out into him, attacks the Philistine outpost. There was Hebrew, there was some uh, textual variants. Another, another version, another old copy of this story. And what it says is that when Jonathan attacked the, the military outpost, um, the Philistine military outpost, he assassinated the governor of the Philistines at the same time. Some of your Bibles may even read that way, that he, that he assassinated the uh, Philistine governor. And this is what caused this whole upheaval. 
It's beautiful because what you get is scripture taking two men, standing them side by side and saying, which one does it seem as if God is with? Which one is God with? Because you see Jonathan march into battle and they are with him. They go with him. They attack. They take care of their business. They handle the situation. And then when it's time for Saul to go to war, all his men panic, leave him. They're hiding in, check this out, thickets, rocks, shrubbery, cisterns, caves, because they're terrified. And so what we see right here is our very first thing. Three things a man must do. Three things a man must do. Number one, a man must lead other men. You cannot be King Saul. King Saul did not lead anyone. In fact, what he did was he continued to lose people behind him all the time. You must lead other men. All men were created to lead other men. All men. Every single one of us has a sphere of, influ a sphere of influence. Where we exist inside of a world, maybe it's just our family, maybe it's close friends, maybe it's people that we work with, but we have people around us all the time who are within our sphere of influence. Our children, some of you it's your parents. And there are people around us who we have the power to change their life. We have the power to lead them and to take them forward to better their life. If you want to know how you're doing in the area of leading other men, then you have to ask this question. Are the people, the men around you, getting better at loving their wives, loving their children, being a part of a congregation, um, showing mercy? Are the men around you getting better? See, because here's the reality of it. Men were designed to lead, and if men are not leading, then that must mean we forgot how to follow. There's only one reason in the world that men do not lead, and that's because they have never learned how by following. You see, when you take your life and you hand it over to Jesus Christ, you become a student of the greatest leader in the world. Thus, you understand every single thing you need to know about leadership by following Jesus. If the people around you are not getting better, then you have to ask the question, maybe I'm not following close enough. Maybe I'm not following close enough. Because the spiritual, the spiritual turnaround, the spiritual principle is this. When you follow Jesus, he will make you a leader every single time. Inside your sphere of influence. Now, I'm not talking about you're going to go start a church. Maybe you are. You're going to go be in politics. Maybe you are. But I'm talking about inside of your circle. You have influence on the people around you. If you're following Jesus, then the people around you will be changing. They will be changing. And yes, it may be very slow. It may be very, very slow. But there should be change unfolding in their life. So number one, three things in men, that men must do. Number one, we must lead other men. And that comes from us following Christ with all of our heart. Next picture that we look at um, comes right, goes right from 13. Uh, I'm going to give you just a, just a little snapshot in the middle of chapter 13. And then we're going to move right into 14. So the Philistines, I don't know if you know this about the Philistines. They were, they were kind of a sea people, kind of a uh, group of, think of like maritime uh, Vikings, like uh, pirates of sorts. 
And the Philistines were these kind of people. Like I put like Johnny Depp in my mind. Like that's who's it, Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean. Like that's what's in my mind. Like he looks like a Philistine, only he's too short. But if he was taller, he would be really good Philistine. So this is like, this is kind of what I think of. And so here's, here's the thing. The Philistines were not like this big, huge group of giants with, uh, and just like real dumb. In fact, they were technologically advanced. They were doing things with iron that a lot of civilizations were not doing with iron at this time period. And the other deal is this. When they uncovered this area, the Philistine area where they, where they lived, they found multiple breweries and wine cellars everywhere. They were excellent at creating, producing, and consuming alcohol. They were excellent at it, which kind of makes sense a little bit because half the time they go out and they, they, they would attack merchant ships on the Mediterranean, and the other half the time after a long night of drinking, they kind of came inland looking for a fight, I think is what was going on. I think we can take anybody we want, so we'll pick a fight, Let's build an outpost in the middle of Israel. What are they going to do about it? I think this is kind of in my mind. This is the way it's unfolding. And so they would kind of start this thing. And so they are a, they're a pretty savvy group. They come up with a plan, right, as everybody's kind of lining up and, and, and preparing for war. And I don't know how long it took, a week, two weeks. As everyone's preparing for war, the Philistines get this brilliant idea. Let's kidnap every single blacksmith in Israel and take all their swords away. And so they do. All of them. In fact, Scripture says there were only two swords <laughs> in all of Israel. A detachment, three detachments from the Philistine army, raiding parties went out, stole. They said you could not find a blacksmith in Israel anywhere. Took their swords. These men show up to fight. Have you ever seen the old cartoons where they're chasing somebody and they got pitchforks and they got torches and they got like sickles, sticks? Like, this is Israel's army now. <coughs> There's the context. Verse 23 of chapter 13. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. They are a lookout team. Michmash is this little area, and there's this little ledge that comes up. Not a big ledge, but this little ledge that comes up. And there's men up on this ledge, and they are the lookout. There are these two... Uh, Bazaz and Sanaa, these two cliffs that are right here, and then there's this gorge that runs between them. And if you were going to attack, you would have to come around one side or the other. The other way you could get there is you could come straight down the valley, which on a military strategy level is not a good idea. Don't get caught down in low ground. You know, it's just, it's just a bad plan. And so they are up high, this lookout squad. Everybody else is kind of, all, the rest of the military is all the way back here. And then check out what Jonathan says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah. As I understand it, this is roughly about seven miles away from where the, uh, where the uh, war is to take place. That's kind of Saul, though. Um, you guys just take care of that. You handle that. Holler, holler, holler if you need me. I'll be, I'll be back here. So he's seven miles away, uh, hanging out underneath a pomegranate tree, it says. With him were about 600 men, among who uh, were all these priestly types that are, that are with him. And then it says in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, no one was aware that Jonathan had left. 
on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bezez, the other one Sanaa. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other toward the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young arbor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost to those uncircumcised fellows. Fellows, okay? Uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, listen to this line, whether by many or by few. Jonathan has a sword. His armor bearer is not really bearing much, is he? There's really not much to, to bear because there's not much carry around. The Philistines stole it all. Jonathan has a sword and he looks at this young kid who's with him and he says, hey, do you want to go make some trouble? To which guys always answer, yeah. We should. That'd be good. He says, yeah, yeah we should. He says, let's go see the Philistines. Here's the plan. We'll come up. We'll stand back on this edge where they can see us and we'll make faces. Do you remember uh, Monty Python? Uh, where they show up at the castle and he says, your mother was a hamster and your father, you remember? Anyway. So they're in this argument. So they're, they're taunting the Philistines. No idea how many are up there, just taunting the Philistines. And so John, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, he says, here's the deal. If they say to us, wait right there, we'll come down there. Then we'll wait. Bring it. But if they say, would you come on up here? We'll teach you a lesson. We're climbing up there. And Jonathan's armor bearer, you can tell, like you looked at him and he's got that crazy look in his eye, like, we're gonna get him this time. You know that deal. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna get him. You know? It's all maniacal. And the armor bearer's like, okay, whatever you whatever you want to do. He's like, so that's the way it's gonna go. All right, so they go out there, they start taunting him. Hey, 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 you know what your mother looks like? And they're just cracking on him over and over. That's not in the Bible, but they're just cracking on him. And he tells him, he says, so we're going to wait and see what they say. And so then the Philistines say, hey, you know what? If you want some of us, climb on up. We'll teach you a lesson, punk. Jonathan, Jonathan says, that's our sign. That's our sign that God is with us. Now, here's the thing that I would say. If you go out somewhere and you, and you say to somebody, all right, if God wants me to get in a fight. Then when I insult him, he's going to be like, why don't you bring it? If he says, why don't you bring it? Then I'm going to brung it, you know? Like that's not really a good plan. Like, it kind of seems like you're kind of playing the odds to your own favor. If you want some of me, push a guy, and he's like, yeah, bring it. That must be God saying, bring it, bring it. It's kind of, but the situation's a little bit different. And what Jonathan says is, who can stop God? Who can stop God? With little or much, who can stop God? And the Philistines say, won't you climb on up here? So the way you would get up there is you would either come back around and you would go up this other side, up the ridge, or you would go the other way around the other ridge. But Jonathan says, we're not going that way. We're going to climb the face of this cliff ourselves. You come with me. We're going to go up and we're going to get him. And Jonathan's armor bearer, let me read this to you. Jonathan's armor bearer says to, says to uh, Jonathan, do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead I am with you, heart and soul. Well, that's kind of interesting, really. The Hebrew, the literal Hebrew is this. Do what's in your heart, for behold, my heart is your heart. Do what you will, because whatever you've decided to do, my heart is your heart. I'm with you. 
And it says that they climbed hand and foot up the face of this cliff. Not knowing who or what or how many there were, they climbed up and they fought. Up at the top of this plateau on the, on the pass by Micmash, it's about a half an acre big. And when they get up there, there are Philistines and Jonathan goes to fighting them. And listen to what scripture says. This is really cool. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor, and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about a half an acre. Then we see this new picture of Jonathan. Something else unfolding in Jonathan. So men must lead men. But then you come to Jonathan and you see something a little bit different. Men never run alone. They never run alone alone I had a guy come in to see me one time this was it's been a couple years ago he was struggling in his life and his marriage and his, it was just, just, just a mess tons of addiction just an absolute it was, it was rough and I felt bad for him but that wasn't the first time that somebody had come in in that condition in fact several of you have been in that same situation and my suggestion to him was he needed to sit down and visit with some of you and I said, let me put you around some men who can really kind of help you. Who you can talk to, who you can understand how they got over these things. Because, fella, you look trapped. You look stuck. His response to me was this. I will never forget it. His, I will never forget it. His response to me was this. I'm a lone wolf. I'm an alpha. I don't like other alphas. I don't really do good. And packs. The irony of the situation is this. I don't know a lot about wolves. But I do know some about wolves. When we were growing up, my dad got this really wild hair to raise wolves. I don't know. Just showed up one day. I'm going to go to Iowa. Why? There's a guy who's selling a wolf, and I'm going to go buy it. Sweet. Like, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard in my life, you know? And he did. And we had several. And so there were books, documentaries, movies. Like, for a little while, listen, if it was put out by Marty Stauffer, I could tell you all kinds of stuff about Marty Stauffer and, and wolves and books. And, I mean, it, we know tons of stuff. And so when he says... I'm a lone wolf. I'm an alpha. I don't do good around other alphas. There was too much information that was just wrong. The truth of it is this. The only reason, there's a couple reasons, but two good reasons why there would ever be a lone wolf is if the wolf is sick or the wolf has been put outside the pack because it's deviant. To which I looked at him and I said, which are you? There is a third option. Some will leave the pack when they're going off to create another pack. And that works. 
Men do not run alone. They do not run alone. We were not made to stand alone. We were not made to take all of the stuff from our past and harbor it inside of ourselves only. You were not made to be married to another woman and then never talk to another man about what's going on inside of your home. You were not made for that. Life is too big and it's too heavy to do by yourself. It crushes men. I get to see it all the time. It crushes men. Life is too heavy to do on your own. Oh, but I think I'm doing pretty good, Jared. I think you're doing pretty good right now. But for the long term, nope, you're a goner. Promise. Promise. It's inevitable. Men do not run by themselves. There are no lone wolves. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The Latin, ferrum acuity ferrum. The abrasive process of metal on metal causes the weak parts to disappear, to be cast off, to be thrown away so that a better product can be produced. That abrasive sparks flying process where men get in a room and they size each other up. It happens here every single Sunday. I watch it happen and I love it. Men walk in the door and a dude walks through and every dude in the room goes like this. They, all of you, all of you do it. You size up the, you size up on a, looks like he benches a lot. Dude looks like he's tough. Dude looks like he thinks he's tough, you know? <laughs> this is the way it happens because that's what men do. You see, where men fall short is by not carrying out the rest of that. And that is to where we enter a relationship on another level with another male. And we say, you know what? This is where my life is. And I need you in my life because it is whipping my tail. And I need you in my life. Men never run alone. Then we arrive at 1 Samuel chapter 18. where Jonathan then shows up after watching what just unfolded with David and Goliath. And he sees this young boy march out onto the battlefield, this, this, this kid, I don't know, 15 maybe, march out onto the battlefield, swing a sling, throw this rock, bury it in the skull of this giant, lop his head off, and drag it back and put it in front of the king. And you can tell inside of Jonathan's mind, now that right there, my friend, is a leader. Imagine, if you will, that you are Jonathan and you are raised and you are nursed at the table of your father being king and all of the military leaders around him all the time. This is your company. As you grow up, you grow up in one of these homes to where there are these strong men everywhere. And there's these military men at the table. And when Jonathan is a boy, maybe he looks at these kids and he says, when I grow up, I want to be just like him. When I grow up, I want to be just like him. I want to be just like that guy, my uncle, because he was in the military. I want to be like this guy, because he's such a stud. And Jonathan's sitting at the table as a boy, but then as he grows older, something happens, and he begins to realize that he seems to be the biggest stud of the table. He seems to be the military giant. He seems to be the one that is full of bravery. And he's looking around the room, and he's saying to himself, 
these guys used to be bigger and stronger to me. You ever go sledding down a hill when you were a kid and then you revisited that hill when you became an adult and you looked at it and you were like, it was bigger. It was so much bigger. Like these men that I used to go to church with when I was a kid and I would see these men and they had hands that looked like, I don't even know, just these massive just claws. I would see these men, these guys are huge. And then now I'm, I'm older and I see these men and, and I get around them and I think to myself, it used to be bigger. It used to be bigger. And then Jonathan meets David. For 40 days, Goliath stood in the valley of Elah and taunted the armies of Israel. For 40 days, and Saul did nothing. And I don't know where Jonathan was at the time, but here's my thoughts. He's probably thinking to himself, you know what, I'm not doing it this time, Dad. I'm not doing it. <coughs> you want it handled? Handled. Maybe Jonathan's scared. Maybe Jonathan's passive. Maybe Jonathan's not there. But in my mind, all I can think is, he's not there. He's not bailing him out this time. Saul is stuck. And then David shows up. Can you imagine if you're Jonathan and you're on the other side? You have climbed to the very highest point of the military that you can climb. You are it. And there is now no challenge anywhere around you. And then all of a sudden you see a kid come walking out there with a slingshot. And he decapitates the giant. And he brings the head back and he puts it in front of your father who you know in your heart is a bit of a coward. Do you think that that breathed a, fre a, a breath of fresh air into Jonathan's life? This is where the principle comes from. We say it all the time. The third thing that a man must do is to be sure he is never the best man in the room. You cannot be the best man in the room. Jonathan had finally found himself at the place in the army with his dad as the king to where he, had, he was at the top. Why does he respond to David like this when he sees him? Because finally, somebody's here to challenge me. Finally, somebody's going to push me. I'm tired of coasting. Tired of coasting. Third thing we have to do, men, is never be the best guy in the room. It's comfortable. Isn't it comfortable? It's comfortable. You can surround yourself with and isolate yourself from people on the outside and keep yourself around a group of needy little people who love you and just think you're the greatest thing that ever happened in the entire world. And you can be the king of the hill in your own backyard behind your 12-foot privacy fence. But among the rest of the world, you are not. You have to push yourself outside of that and to be challenged on, a, on another level. You have to. And see, here's where it gets personal to me. Because although I get the opportunity to come up here and talk about what we need to do to change things in our life, here's what I'm absolutely certain of. By knowing you, I know a hard, I know a hard day work. I know a hard day work. By knowing you, I know how to be a dad. By knowing you, I know how to fight for things that are important to me when it would be easier to quit.
by knowing you. I know how to endure through hard things when they come into my life and I can't do anything about it and still survive them. I know how because of you. This is where it gets personal to me. Because I don't know how to be morally good. But I can when I watch you. I think I can physically push myself. And I can get better. But I can't. Unless you're there. You don't find people to surround yourself with who are better in some category of life. You don't get better. It's weak and it's coasting and it's King Saul and it's cowardly. The only way we grow is when we put ourselves in the presence of somebody who in some way is stronger, better, more devoted, more loving, more spiritual, than you are. Why does Jonathan fall down at the feet of David and give him his everything? Because you don't know what you've made me. You don't know what you've done for me. You've impacted my life in a way that I will give you whatever you want. And you know what's interesting? Is the very first thing that it says that Jonathan gave David was his robe. Do you know why that's important? Because you didn't get some sort of card that you kept in your wallet that said, oh, by the way, I'm the son of the king. What you did is you wore it on your garment. It was your garment. It was your tunic. I mean, not your tunic. It was your robe. And that said, you know what? I'm royalty. And in a strange turn of events, the son of the king, unbeknownst to him, takes his robe off and he puts it on the shoulders of the one that God has already chosen to be the king. 